Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you got a few friends with you in that position, so start a group, a Word Diet group. Help them get into the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Ephesians, my favorite book on Christian theology and practice. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're getting toward the end of Ephesians 1. In the previous couple of segments, we were in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15, where it starts with, For this reason, which points us back to the great passage in verses 3 through 14, which we covered in the podcast and the episodes before that. Verse 17 also refers to wisdom and revelation, brings the Holy Spirit into that. So we've talked about the need for knowledge, wisdom, experiential, living through the Spirit. And then I'm going to start reading in verse 18. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So Paul prays that they be enlightened about the hope, the inheritance, and the incomparably great power. And that's where he picks things up at the end of verse 19 through the rest of the chapter, which I'll now read. His incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Paul is describing that power, which he introduced just a half verse earlier. He says it's like the working of God's mighty strength. And there's an amazing set of words here. Power, which is the Greek word dunamis, where we get dynamite. Working, which is the Greek word energeia, which is where we get the word energy, and the words mighty and strength, all in one package. Paul's basically using his entire vocabulary to try to describe what's in play here. And then he says, which he exerted in Christ, which was demonstrated publicly by, verse 20, his resurrection, raised from the dead, his exaltation, later in verse 20 into verse 21, seated Christ in the heavenlies, with all sovereignty for all eternity. The fact that he's seated implies that he's resting in ownership, stability, and authority like a judge at a bench. Verse 22 has the coronation, everything is under him. And then verse 23 might be called the permeation. It fills everything in every way. Again, back to verses 18 and 19 in Paul's prayer, his prayer is that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. With respect to our justification, I think it's just wow here that it's a power that obliterates sin through the power of God. 
And then I think Paul's chief concern here is sanctification, that this power is for us and it is in us through the Holy Spirit. About both of these, John Stott says, if there are two powers which man cannot control, but which hold him in bondage, they are death and evil. Man is mortal, he cannot avoid death. Man is fallen, he cannot overcome evil. But God in Christ has conquered both and therefore can rescue us from both. And then Warren Wearsby talking about all this in terms of sanctification says, he is talking about divine, dynamic, eternal energy available to us. And then Wearsby concludes about this, after all, what good is it to have wealth if you're too weak to use it? We have the wealth. We have identity in Christ. Do we have the power to put those things to use through the Spirit? Verse 22 and 23 is a majestic, magnificent ending. References here to head, body, Christ filling everything in every way. Very similar to what he'll do at the end of Ephesians 3 when he's also rambling in praise as the lead-in to the responsibilities we have in Christ, starting in Ephesians 4 and running through the rest of the book. Similar language to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 as well, and pointing, of course, to the importance of unity of believers under the Lordship of Christ. We can have a bad sort of unity in the world of the church, or no unity at all, but here everything is supposed to be unified properly, proper doctrine, experience, wisdom, revelation, and so on, under the head, the body of Christ, and that is the church. Two last thoughts as we wrap up chapter one. First, Paul is thinking of and addressing these believers, but so far he's mostly addressing God with praise and prayer. John Stott observes about this. First, he blesses God for having blessed us in Christ. Then he prays that God will open our eyes to grasp the fullness of this blessing. Stott continues by talking about the importance of balance between praise and prayer. Some pray for more, seemingly oblivious to the bounty that has already been given. Others implicitly act as if they already have it all and are complacent. As Stott puts it, what Paul does in Ephesians 1 and therefore encourages us to copy is both to keep praising God that in Christ all spiritual blessings are ours and to keep praying that we may know the fullness of what he has given us. Again, I think there are great challenges in here in how we conceive of prayer and prayer in combination with praise. Prayer has many facets, but Stott is talking about what Paul is doing here, which is mostly praise and understanding what God has already done for us instead of praying for more. And that's a theme we've seen throughout chapter 1. And that takes me to my final thought about Ephesians 1, that Paul here has given us four interesting pairs to hold and to pursue in balance. Verse 17 was wisdom and revelation. Verse 18 and 19, to know and believe. Verse 17 and 18, theology and experience, and then as I was just describing, prayer and praise. We can't convey what we don't have. How do we convey what we do have? A lot of it is coming from the overflow of what God has experienced to us. It's very natural for that overflow to be impactful on others. We experience the extravagance of God's grace that has been lavished on us. And out of that, people will see it naturally in us, and it will be natural for us to share what the great and good God has done for us. So that takes us to chapter 2 of Ephesians. If chapter 1 is about our spiritual possessions in Christ, chapter 2 would be our spiritual position in Christ. First in general terms, the first 10 verses and then an extended discussion of what this means for Jews and Gentiles in the second half of chapter 2, 
and well into chapter 3. We start with chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And this is our condition apart from Christ. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. These three verses have been described as a quick summary of Paul's longer discussion of the same idea in Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20. It's also consistent with a very quick description of the gospel in Romans 3.23 and 6.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But it's also a theme in the Old Testament, as Isaiah 59.2 puts it quite clearly and simply, your iniquities have separated you from your God. So what is our condition apart from Christ? Well, first, spiritually dead in our sin, not just stuck, not just bad. Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28, talks about the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So the spiritually dead often look alive, but they aren't. Some people are obviously a hot mess. Other people look pretty good on the outside, but at the end of it, they're all spiritually dead and in sin apart from Christ. Now, this stark description begs the question, how can we exercise free will? If we're dead, how do we become alive? And of course, that's through becoming born again through the predestination and prevenient grace that we talked about back in chapter one. Death means to be separated or alienated from God Paul will revisit this in Ephesians 4.18, where he writes, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is due in them due to the hardening of their hearts. John 3 talks about the need to be born again. Peter does as well. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Again, some people look better than others from a secular, worldly, external perspective, but they're all still dead. Think about cut flowers. You can have cut flowers that look pretty, but they're still dead. They're not attached to the source of life anymore, and they will eventually and quickly wilt. The second condition, apart from Christ, that he mentions here is that we're morally rebellious. We walk or live. We are disobedient by nature. Paul here uses different terms for sin. The term trespasses is one Greek word, and this implies a failure to stay within bounds, to trespass, to cross a line. Whether known or unknown, you can trespass without knowing that you've done so. And then a general term for sin is the Greek word harmardia, which means a failure to measure up to a standard or to miss the mark. In general, this is failing to meet the standard of perfection and holiness that God has through sins of omission and commission, doing the things we shouldn't do and not doing the things that we should. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. James 4.17, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And then Daniel 6.4, a verse I love, 
when the wise men are looking for dirt on Daniel, it says they could find no corruption in him because he, he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Corrupt would be sins of commission, doing things he shouldn't have been doing, and negligent, failing to do the things that he should have been doing. And for some people, it's the sins of omission that gets their attention about how far they fall short of God's standard. Staying out of trouble is one thing. Doing everything we're supposed to, that's a different deal. The third part of our condition, apart from Christ, is that we're seductively influenced and enslaved to social, spiritual, and personal pressures by the world, Satan, and the sin nature. That's the evil trinity, in fact. And notice the verbs here, followed, following, at work in, cravings, desires, thoughts, sons of, nouns and verbs that flavor this idea of social pressures and spiritual pressures that are supernatural. The world, the devil, and the flesh, all three should be understood and balanced. Sometimes we'll over or underestimate one or the other, but all three are our enemies. All three of them cause us trouble. All three of them work together to cause us trouble. As a result of all this, the fourth condition apart from Christ is that we're divinely condemned, we're doomed for eternity. As the old NIV puts it, we're objects of wrath. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Romans 2.5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. And of course, this is ultimately depicted in Revelation 20, verses 13 through 15. Wearsby sums up this passage by using the words dead, disobedient, depraved, and doomed. God takes all sin very seriously present and ongoing consequences, and then future wrath, which is fierce and unalterable. And sometimes people say, you know, I wouldn't mind going to hell because at least my friends will be there. But that's not the testimony of the rich man in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. He was a huge fan of missions. He wanted to go out and warn his friends. Whatever hell is, however it's experienced, it is terribly unpleasant judgment for the sins that we've committed outside of the grace of God must be terrible. John Stott says, outside Christ, man is dead because of trespasses and sins, enslaved by the world, the flesh, and the devil, condemned under the wrath of God. It is a failure to recognize the gravity of the human condition, which explains people's naive faith in superficial remedies. It's a failure to understand the depth of our sin, which prevents us from embracing the grace of God. And for the believer, it's not understanding the extent of our sin, which keeps us away from understanding the amazing grace of God. It's the extent of our sin, which underlines how great that grace is. C.S. Lewis talks about all this in terms of justice, that there are two types of men in the world. There are those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. God in his prevenient grace gives us the ability to choose, but then what are we going to do with that choice? And it's either yes or no. Verse 3 talks about all of us and like the rest. 
you're either in that state or Paul is speaking to you as a believer in your previous state and talking about that. And when we remember that past, we can have gratitude rather than taking it for granted. It should also give Christians more empathy and passion for the lost, but for the grace of God, go I. Let me close this discussion with a famous verse that describes both the problem and the solution that Paul has introduced and will resolve shortly. John three sixteen through 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And then down to John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentucky Anna's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians and then the very powerful opening to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. That takes us to the climactic turning point in verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What a great pair of verses. And this is not as famous as verses 8 and 9 in in chapter 2, just a few verses away as he restates the truth here. But this is some great stuff. God's love and mercy made us alive with Christ through grace. Paul said something similar back in chapter 1, verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. He'll say it again in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Colossians, which is a comparable letter to Ephesians, Paul writes in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle John describes it in terms of birth and rebirth. Verses 12 and 13, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Paul talks about this to great effect in Romans. Romans 6.23, Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That speaks to justification, but Paul, as always, or as often, has in mind sanctification as well. It says here that we've been made alive with Christ, not merely saved, not merely saved from our sins, but made alive with Christ for this life, abundant life, eternal life has already begun, as he puts it in Romans 6, 8 through 11. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's right now. 
or backing up a chapter, chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 of Romans, Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having already been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Notice also the pairing of words at the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 5. Verse 3 ended with, by nature. Verse 5 ends with, by grace. And this transformation of grace is not from bad to good, but from dead to alive. It's interesting and maybe applicable as well that Jesus' three resurrections were of different types. With Jairus' daughter, she was barely dead. The body was still warm. With the son of a widow in Nain, the boy had been dead for some time and the body had stiffened. With Lazarus, he'd been dead for many days and the body had decomposed. It doesn't matter whether you're a warm body, a stiff body, a decomposed body. God, through Jesus, can make you alive. And through his spirit, he can cause you to live a life of abundance, of power, extending the overflowing grace to other people. In contrast, John Stott describes God's wrath, God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, his resolve instead to condemn it. But his wrath is not incommensurate with his love. In verses 3 and 4, Paul moves from the wrath of God to the mercy and love of God without any sense of embarrassment or anomaly. Often people try to resolve this tension by watering down God's wrath as if he's Santa Claus or a doting grandpa. Christianity teaches instead the wrath of God against sin, his wrath toward the evil trinity, the flesh, the devil, and the worldly system. But an implication of this is that we also water down justice. You either end in a universalism that lets everyone in but blows off justice, or sometimes you worship a God of justice who doesn't have mercy and grace. But the biblical God has both a wrath towards sin, injustice, unrighteousness, as well as the amazing grace, love, and mercy to chase us down. Putting together and paraphrasing verses 1 through 5, Paul has written that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We gratified the cravings of our sin nature. We were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God has made the believer alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. Thank God for his amazing grace. One last thought here. In the context of chapter 1's ending about the power that Paul wants us to know intellectually and experientially, chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 is maybe the most amazing show of that power in Christ, which saves us from our sin, justification, but also empowers us to live the sort of life God wants us to do for sanctification that amazing power in Christ, which was and is at work on us, for us, and in us. Lord, we thank you for that grace and your mercy. We thank you that before we could possibly have chosen you, you gave us grace so that we could choose. We thank you for your grace, which saves us, your grace, which empowers us to live lives that bring you honor and glory. May we more fully understand our sins so that we can fully understand and be amazed by the grace that you've extended 
to us. We deserve to be objects of wrath for our sin, but you and your mercy and your love and your grace have brought us into your kingdom in all its greatness and goodness. Lord, we thank you for that. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. Right now we're early in Ephesians 2. We've covered a lot of ground so far. Chapter 1, verse 3, the great spiritual blessings, everything we need in Christ Jesus. Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verse 17, to know God better. And then chapter 2, verse 3, concluded with us being objects of wrath. But then verses 4 through 6, much of which we covered in the previous segment, I want to reread here. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So let's think about the progression of what that grace looks like. Verse 5 opens with made us alive with Christ. Verse 5 concludes with when we were dead in our transgressions. That combination Paul revisits in Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Back to Ephesians 2 verse 6, we were also raised up with Christ and then we were seated with Christ. Paul talks about this as well in Colossians 2, 12, and 13, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. And that leads to Colossians 3, 1, and 2. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Both of these passages speak to the motivation, perspective, the intimacy we have with God through Christ. It implies resting and something more confidently accomplished. The high priest has to keep offering sacrifices over and over again, but what we have experienced in Christ is complete. And not just here, but in the heavenly realms. Again, he used that phrase back in chapter 1, verse 3, and uses it five other times in Ephesians. We are positioned in heaven. As he writes about it in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And all of this is with and in Christ, as he talks about at the end of verse 6. And so chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, parallels for us what God did for Christ, as Paul described in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. The power he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. As Stott notes, these verbs refer to Christ, but what excites our amazement, however, is that now Paul is not writing about Christ, but about us. Again, all this is motivated by verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, great love for us, agape, to seek the highest good and the one loved. And in this case, that's us by God. Later in verse 4, being rich in mercy. This is the Greek word for undeserved kindness. In the Septuagint, this word is translated as the Hebrew term hesed, which is the loyal love that is exhibited in the book of Ruth. And then the word grace in verse 5, which is also described as kindness in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. 
It is not because of anything we did or can do. It is through the love, mercy, and grace of God. One last quote here that's pretty cool. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, Matthew Henry describes it as a lively picture both of the misery of unregenerate men and of the happy condition of converted souls. And all of this should motivate faith and obedience, as Paul talks about in Romans 6, 11 through 13. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Another way to think of this is that Christians are the greatest rags to riches stories of all time. Psalm 113, verses 5 through 8, Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. Obviously, the context there is different, but it's the same idea. Who are we that God looks down on us? We're nothing. And yet he raises us up from the poor, the dust, from the needy, the ash heap, to sit on high, not just on earth, but especially in heaven. If you don't understand the rags or the riches, then you misunderstand the greatness of God's glory and grace. The problem is greater than you think in terms of sin. The solution is greater than you can imagine in terms of all of the manifestations of God's grace, not simply forgiveness, but the things that Paul is talking about in verses 4 through 6. It helps us more fully appreciate the holiness and the character of God. When we see the light of verses 4 through 6, in contrast to the background, the nasty background of verses 1 through 3. We can appreciate the grace of God more fully after understanding the horror of our own sinfulness. Think of Isaiah 6, verses 5 through 8. It is revealed to the prophet that he is unclean. The coal is placed on his lips, and he's made clean. And then as a result of that, he wants to be sent, but he needed to see the uncleanliness first. Luther said, hunger is the best cook. And in the words of Jesus, you have to be sick to see the physician. If there's nothing to be saved from, why do you need a savior? I think all of this also helps us understand why some Christians or self-styling Christians are apprehensive about dying and uncertain about eternal life. For one thing, they may not know the doctrine. 1 John 5.13 He writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I think a second concern relates to what we've seen in Ephesians 2, that this implies a dramatic conversion. The life of 1 through 3 is or should look and feel very different than the life of verses 4 through 6. Think of the Apostle Paul. We talk about Damascus Road conversions. Paul is one person in Acts 8, and he's a very different person after encountering Jesus in Acts 9. If you don't have that dramatic conversion, maybe it's easy to wonder and worry that it's not real. But usually for the Spirit-filled Christian, that's offset by an abiding relationship with Jesus that grows in grace and knowledge. So the bigger concern, I think the largest concern overall, is for people who are not experiencing that, and they wonder if they've lost their salvation. Maybe the Christian life is like a spelling bee and you flunk a word and get kicked off the stage. 
But I think if you're not experiencing that, then you have to wonder, did you ever have it in the first place? And so this leads to the metaphor of fruit inspection, that you look at the fruit of your life and you get others to help you with this. And if the fruit is not there, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, and 23, if you're not growing a grace and knowledge, it leads to some very difficult questions for you and those close to you about whether you in fact have an abiding faith. It's possible to have a faith that is stagnant, but it's not a great experience, and it leads to the questions and apprehension about death, uncertainty about eternal life, pretty naturally. It's not what we're designed for. As believers, we're designed to have the abundant life of living in Christ and through the Spirit that Paul is describing here and will continue to describe in Ephesians. And if we're not reaching for that, it is natural and reasonable to ask ourselves and those close to us whether we are in fact saved. It's a much longer and hairier discussion requiring tons of verses and theology to get into, but we're talking about eternal security and the question of whether people in that spot have been saved in the first place. I'll give you one passage to look at that I think is key and at least has been helpful for me in forming my views on this issue. It's 2 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And so here Paul seems to be talking about three types of people, right? Those who endure the the sort of spirit-filled life we're talking about here, they will reign with him. That's clear enough. Number two is if we disown him, if we make an explicit effort to say we don't want it anymore, he will disown us. But if we're faithless, if we're just kind of plodding along treading water, God remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. I think in many of these things, we're thinking of you know, pictures like Luke 15. You have the, the son who wanders off in profligate living. You have the legalistic son who remains behind, both a mess in their own ways, but they're still sons of the father. They're not kicked out. They're always loved by the father in the grace of the father and so on. Or we have the picture from the Old Testament, the people of Israel delivered from the bondage and sin of Egypt, and they're destined for the promised land of fruit and fight, but they don't have the faith to go into that, so they settle for wilderness living, which is akin to the carnal cultural Christian who is still saved, but just isn't experiencing the joy, peace, love, the fruit of the Spirit, and the fight of living every day in the spirit in a difficult context against the flesh, the world, and the devil. The wilderness Christian has escaped the bondage of sin in Egypt, but they're missing out on what could be a great abundant life that God has in store for them. If that's you, make the investment. Step out in faith. Give your life to Jesus. Depend on the spirit. Be amazed by the grace of God and let it change your life from the inside out. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and Friend Me there, questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. In the previous segment, we did Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6. This describes our new position. We were objects of wrath, verses 1 through 3. We have an amazing new position in verses 4 through 6. Made alive in Christ, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ, And now in verses 7 and 10, we'll see our new purpose, which brackets the classic verses 8 and 9, which is the means of our salvation. As Walvert and Zook put it, Paul discusses how sinners who deserve nothing but God's wrath 
can become trophies of his grace. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 9. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That phrase from Walvert and Zook, trophies of his grace, is really a nice way of describing what's in verse 7. It says there, in order to show, the word for show in the NIV is prove in the Greek. It's in the coming ages, in the future. So it's interesting that our salvation leads to the salvation of others in the future and to God's glory in heaven. And then the awesome passage in verses 8 and 9, that we are saved by grace, appropriated by faith. It's the gift of God. You have salvation, grace, and faith all in one package here. It expands the parenthetical comment that Paul had made in chapter 2, verse 5. We talked there about verses 4 and 5 being a less famous version of the same thing, and Paul has returned to it here. We're saved because of grace, never because of, first of all, who we are. Notice that he says in verse 8, it's not from yourselves. That's the negative here. And it's not from your parents. There was a lot of confusion then that ethnicity led to relationship with God, that the Jews were children of Abraham and so on. In our own day, we have a version of this with cultural Christianity. You're raised in a, quote, Christian home, and we assume that people are Christians. Well, they're not. God has no grandchildren. It's an individual decision. It's not your parents. It's not your grandparents. It's not you. It's not who we are. It's not who we're related to that causes us to be saved. It's by God's grace. It's also, second of all, not what we do. Verse 9 says it's not by works. Number of great verses here, Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who's unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Galatians 2, 16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Or the argument that Paul puts forward in Romans 4.2-5, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Paul makes a great argument by comparing it to wages. If it's by works, then you get your pay and you deserve it. But it's not by works. It can't be by works. Therefore, it must be by grace or by gift. Romans eleven six, Paul says, if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Or think about it in Jesus' terms, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And finally, 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. 
Again, we're back to the idea of prevenient grace. The grace of Jesus has been extended to us from before the beginning of time. The other phrase to consider here is also negative at the end of verse 9, so that no one can boast. Chapter 2 opened with basically, hey, remember where you came from. You were objects of wrath. This idea of boasting, Paul returns to it a few other times. Romans 3.27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. In other words, if the new law under the new covenant requires faith, what is there to boast about? Or back to Romans 4.2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. So yeah, we might boast about our earthly exploits to other people, but to God, doesn't make any sense. Of course, boasting connects to pride, self-righteousness, arrogance, basically saying, God, you owe me this. Are you poor in spirit? Are you humble? That's what's consistent with the kingdom of God, understanding grace, understanding how we don't deserve it. The Pharisees, the self-righteousness that comes with arrogance, legalism, and the like is not consistent with the kingdom of God. And with this approach, the glory goes to God rather than to us. Or think of it this way. My pastor in Texas used to talk about how painful heaven would be if it were by works. You know, you'd run into someone up there and you'd say, hey, what are you doing here? And they'd say, well, I got here by helping a bunch of old ladies across the street and making banana bread and being kind to people. And they go on and on and on about how they deserved heaven. How painful would that be? The real answer when you go to heaven is, what are you doing here? And the answer is going to be Jesus. That's it. The glory goes to God. How obnoxious would it be in heaven if it were by our works, if that were the focus? And so it's for these reasons and many more that the ultimate question comes down to grace and works. When you're talking to people, sometimes there's stumbling blocks about this and that, about religion or Christianity or the Bible. Take them to the question of grace and works. All religion, all forms of religion, either believe that you can earn your salvation or that you cannot. And the essence of Christianity is right here in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by grace. It's appropriated by faith. It's a gift. You cannot earn it. And so talking to people, that's a key question. Do you think you can earn it? Do you think you can be good enough to get to heaven? And of course, the answer is no. Think of the parable that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down at everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In the words and thoughts of Paul here, it's by grace you've been saved. If you don't understand that, you will be taken down. It's those who embrace the grace of God who will be lifted up, not just for salvation, but also for abundant life. At the end of a day, it is tortured living to try to live up to the standard, to try to earn these things. It's an old movie reference, but think of saving Private Ryan and Tom Hanks' dying words to earn this, and then Private Ryan's tortured attempt to live up to that standard, which is revealed 
at the end of the film, how sad and pathetic that is that Hanks put that burden on Private Ryan, and it's a burden that can't be carried. You can't earn it. It's always and only by grace. Let me use Romans 3, 20 through 24 as a thankful conclusion to this discussion. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And that takes us to another great verse, Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. The Greek word here is poema, which is where we get the word poem. also can be translated as a work of art or a masterpiece. There's no room for pride, but there's also no room for low self-esteem. We have Christ-esteem. We are God's workmanship. We are individual and unique, and this applies to our gifting, our personality, and so on. We are exhibitions of his recreative power, and again, we're meant to be a trophy. He'll revisit this theme in Ephesians 4.24 when he talks about putting on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This also implies that work is not just a job or a duty, as individuals were built by God to pursue certain ends. John Eldridge quotes Gil Bailey, who says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that, because what the world needs is people who have come alive, and we have come alive in Christ. The second phrase here is created for good works, and these are opposed to human works, which he has just talked about in verse 9, not just avoiding bad actions, but we are created to do good things. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Jesus talks about himself in the same way. John 4.34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 9, 4 and 5, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work while I am in the world. I am the light of the world. And then Jesus praying to God in John 17, 4, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. We're not saved by our works, but they are a purpose of our salvation. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 17 talks about being thoroughly equipped for every good work. 1 Peter 2, 12 talks about our good deeds that they may impress the pagans. And all of this must be done in Christ Jesus, as Paul has talked about throughout Ephesians, by faith in Christ and in dependence on the Spirit. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We work it out while God works it in. And then finally, the underrated phrase at the end, prepared in advance for us to do. And first, this takes the pressure off of us that we have some need to determine those works for ourselves. We have to discover what God wants us to do, not determine what we should do. And prepared in advance also gets back to predestination, elect, and being chosen. God's had these plans for us from the beginning. And it also implies that he's gifted us and equipped us to do the things that he's planned for us to do since the beginning. 
And I like the idea here that he's not just looking for us to do busy work. He's excited that we come into the kingdom because he's got plans, has had plans for us to do things from the beginning of time. The phrase for us to do is literally translated here in order that we might walk in them. And so doing good works is to walk in faith, to walk in light rather than darkness. Thanks be to God for saving us and for saving us to do good works for his glory, his goodness, his kingdom. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.